Welcome to the Blackcast. Joining me now, guitarist, singer, songwriter Brian Ray has a great new song, which our audio listeners just heard a little of, called Got a New Thing, out now from Wicked Cool Records. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks so much, Christian. It's a pleasure to be here, man. Yeah, it's uh, fun. And look, we were talking before uh, we got started. That is a fantastic hat. And uh, for people watching, I want to make sure that they see it. Uh, I'll make sure there's a little thumbnail for uh, people who are only hearing the audio. Uh, but uh, let's get right into uh, Got a New Thing. Uh, I was reading some notes about it. First of all, I think it's a great song. I, I listened to it several times. That's uh, the best thing about, uh, you know, interviewing a musician. The best way to, to do your research is, uh, you know, just close your eyes and listen, you know, a few times. <laughs> I read some other stuff too, but uh, that the best part is just listening to the music. And uh, so you, you talked a little bit about what the song means, uh, but I thought uh, instead of me quoting what you said, it might be more interesting if I let you just kind of talk about where the idea for the song came from. Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, first of all, I'm not doing protest music as much as I am just uh, an American man who has something to say every once in a while. Otherwise, I'm talking about women in cars, you know, like any sure. of them. Yeah. <laughs> but every once in a while, something comes along that grabs my attention, I think deserves to be amplified with whatever sort of amplification I can offer up. In this case, my new single, Got a New Thing on Wicked Cool Records, it's really, for me, it's a song for and about the survivors and victims of sexual abuse and uh, victims and survivors of coercion in cults, myriad cults all over the world. And, you know, it's, it's hard to rock out when you're writing about such a tender subject as that. Sure, yeah. But I figured out if I could write about it as these women, mostly women are now seeing their perpetrator walked away in handcuffs. And these women finally have a new life in front of them. And as a, as a result of being heard and being understood. So that's the song, Got a New Thing. Well, it's interesting, obviously, because uh, it's uh, obviously, you know, uh, a, a subject worth talking about. But when you talk about cults, I think, you know, in recent years, the idea of what a cult is has changed so much. I mean, people used to think of, you know, uh, Jonestown and, uh, you know, and, and all of that. But now it's, you know, there earlier this year, there was this uh, HBO miniseries about that Nexium cult and, you know, how that just kind of starts as like a self-help business. And then you blink and all of a sudden you're like in really deep in a cult, you know, and it, it really, it, it's not the, you know, people getting, not that it doesn't happen, but it's, you know, the idea of a cult was probably like, you know, somebody gets, you know, taken away in a van somewhere. And uh, next thing you know, you're, you, you know, you're, I don't know, you're just uh, seeing the world completely different, but this idea that it's like, Oh, these are people who are doing good things. And, and before you know it, it it's, you know, you're, you're, you don't even know what you're into. And that, and uh, that, I mean, that's a case that, uh, you know, is just, it's still ongoing and that's probably the most high profile thing. But I think because of a show like that, people definitely think differently about cults. I know, I know I do, you know, and you can realize like, oh yeah, people, you know, people who are like, oh, I'm too smart to ever have anything like that happen. And, uh, you know, it really, there's it, it, nothing dumb about it. It's just, uh, you know, the, the way that people, try to sort of engineer that kind of existence and uh you know and uh so i think it's uh i think it's a 
you know, you're right. It's, it's not, uh, it's not, uh, it's not, uh, it's not uh, I saw her standing there uh, to uh, refer to someone that we'll talk about in a little bit, but you know, it's uh, I think it's important to talk about and the song is still catchy. You know, I mean, it's not, look, there are songs that are, that have an important message, you know, I mean, the, it comes immediately to mind. Suzanne Vega had that, that great song about uh, child abuse called Luca. Uh, yeah. You kind of knew that that was a serious song when you heard it. Yes. You know? exactly. And uh, I think that, you know, it, it's all important to talk about, but when you're focusing on the, you know, they got a new thing, the idea, uh, you know, the song, I know references the orange jumpsuit, you know, this idea of, you see that person going away in handcuffs and yeah. you always feel that, you know, you can at least be like, this is terrible that people have had to go through this. At least there's some degree of satisfaction at the end of it all, you know, because uh, I'm sure too many times it happens that the person's never found, the person's never found guilty, all that. So it, I, I think I, I can appreciate the fact that it, it is an upbeat song because you're, you're, you're able to find, you know, really the, the sort of the best part of it, you know, the, the, the way to move on from it and how important that can be, you know? You have a good point. I mean, the truth is, is that most people coerced into being in a cult don't realize that they're being coerced in a cult. It, it starts out as a self-help thing, as was the case with this Nexium thing. So yeah, it's not, I saw her standing there. It's more like I saw him standing there in her orange jumpsuit yeah. in handcuffs. <laughs> Anyway, you know, it's, um, you know, there's another, uh, there's another whole series on the Nexium cult that's told from the point of view of the victims. And right. that's what really caught my eye. The first series is told from one of his male cohorts, you know, as he's trying to find the truth, this Mark guy. Yes. I'm not going to come down heavy on it. But no, I mean, he does come, he does come around. So there, you know, I mean, you can, you can question sort of where he is up into a point, but at least he, you know, because there, are, I guess they talk about people who try to sound the alarm for this guy, Keith Raniere, and they're like, no, 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 you're, you're just seeing it wrong. And at least this is a guy who listens, but yeah, I think to say that he's without blame uh, would be, uh, would be dishonest. Yeah, I think so. But we'll wait for that justice to be met. Sure. In any case, I mean, not to get so spend all our time talking about Keith Raniere, but check it out. There, there's a second series told from the victim's point of view. I think it's called Seduced or Seduction. I'm not sure what it is. I'm sorry for not knowing that. I think it's on stars. Anyway, it's really well worth seeing because it's done. It might have been done better than the first one and it's a more uh, it's a more well-told story and it really brings you in to that very thing you talked about like people don't think they're joining a cult they uh they start out it's he started out as a pyramid scheme multi-level uh, multi-level marketing scheme and it grew into this nexium thing and he was lauded as the next big thing by a lot of big wigs in industry. So, hey, you know, you got to pay attention, man. Things can turn bad fast, as his did. Yeah, and I did a quick search. It's called Seduced Inside the Nexium Cult, and uh, that is uh, indeed from Stars. And, uh, yeah, I think I knew that there was another series, but I didn't actually realize what the difference was. You know, it was like how we had multiple documentaries about that fire fest, you know, a, a year ago, which, you know, it was like, well, which one do you have? Do you have Netflix? Do you have Hulu? Then then that's the one you're going to watch, you know. But uh, that's yeah. interesting. And, 
I I don't I don't know how, I don't know how many hours I can devote to this story, but uh, it's it is fascinating, and you know it's just it, it's the cult of right now. I mean, obviously you you know you have some cults that stand out from obviously you know I already referenced Jonestown, but uh, I mean Where I remember like twenty some odd years ago there you had the the Hellbop people with the with like they all had the the Reeboks on, and you yeah. know it, it's. And you you just you hear about it and you're like oh that's so crazy how does anybody fall for it but like we're talking about it's like you know there's nothing there's nothing to fall for it's just talking to people and then all of a sudden it's like oh, okay yeah this seems like this seems like it makes sense you know and uh, it's uh, I don't know I think it's uh, there, there there's not enough rock songs about cults so uh, I think I'm glad that there's another one you know well there's a band about cults it's called cult. Yeah, but, uh, there's the cult, yeah, with uh, uh, Ian Asterbury is his name, I believe. Exactly. But, well, you yeah. know, in any case, man, I think it, it just to, to put a bow on this thing, yeah. human nature is such that we're looking for something out there to help us in here. I mean, it's yeah. just who we are. We do that with religion. We do that with politics. We do that with vintage cars or vintage guitars. <laughs> you know, we look for it in pop, in rock, in in film, yeah. in, in our stars. It's just that cults are a little bit more insidious. Anyway, yeah. let's talk about music. Well, let, let's talk about the, the music uh, for the song, because, uh, you know, uh, reading about it, uh, you have uh, from one of my favorite bands, uh, you have uh, Scott Schreiner from Weezer uh, on bass and uh, background vocals. And uh, we'll talk about uh, your... I don't know if you want to call it your day job, your side gig, but uh, the, uh, anybody that's seen Paul McCartney in recent years should know Abe because uh, he is a very imposing figure. Uh, he is a, an amazing drummer. Uh, you both play with uh, Paul McCartney, and uh, I, you know, I saw I saw Sir Paul at uh, Dodger Stadium not long ago, but I didn't go to the one that Ringo was at. But I've seen video of that, so I see Abe at a drum kit, Ringo at another drum kit. And uh, I was like, oh, so that's the show that I skipped. Yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to. I wouldn't have enjoyed that at all, you know. <laughs> you don't need to see all yeah. of that, you know. Just the only two surviving Beatles. You, don't worry. It's yeah, even, yeah. yeah, yeah that, that'll happen again at some point. But uh, so talk about sort of putting the song together, uh, and you know the the different uh, collaborators, how how it all came about. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Christian. I mean, this started out uh, in around uh, February. I started writing the song. And every song starts with a different impetus, whether it's the lyric, you got a catchy lyric or a title or a beat or a riff. In the case of Got a New Thing, my new single, it started with the guitar lick. It started there. Then it grew to the verse chords, which I just pulled out of the lick. They're the chords that would go under the lick if the lick had chords. And then I wrote a chorus, and then I rewrote the chorus. The chorus was a very different wordy kind of thing, and it was called Sayonara Baby. That's the way the chorus ended up. And I thought, okay, this is really cool, but I think I want to try another approach. I just allowed myself to, to rewrite it. And sometimes good stuff is rewritten. It's not just written. And that was the case here. And I made a more broad brush, kind of a bigger chorus with fewer words and a big emotion, one turn of phrase emptying into a big sort of acapella vocal wall. 
And then I decided that acapella vocal wall would be a great way to start the song too. And then, um, and then it was about writing the lyrics and finding that, that uh, reason for the lyrics that we were talking about. Sure. And then it was about calling the guys I had in mind, like Scott <laughs> Triner from Weezer, amazing bass player, yeah. really good buddy and an astounding singer. Then uh, these two had worked together with me on, uh, on my first solo album. I think maybe my second one as well. Then I called Abe Laboreal Jr. My um, brother from another mother. <laughs> we started years ago in France playing with some French stars way before Paul. Yeah. I mean, so Abe is the guy who's responsible for me hooking up with Paul 20 years ago. Anyway, so Abe kindly said yes, but he said, but I'm in a getaway in my little house in New York. And uh, I don't have my righteous studio here. And I went, oh, gosh. And I'm not flying around because it's COVID. And I went, yeah, oh. sure. Of course. And he goes, but wait, let me call my drum company and see if they'll send me a like a kit, a drum kit. And let me look around and see if I can put together enough mics to do this. And in like in a day, he got back to me, he says, I got a kid on the way. I've got my mic set up. It's not my most ideal studio, but I can do it. And I was like, holy moly. Then he did it in one take because he's Abe Laboreal Jr. And then uh, Scott Schreiner was over here, uh, actually before Abe did his drums, played bass in my house. He's here in L.A., came to my house, did a little distance session. And uh, he sang out in the hall and I was here in the studio. <laughs> And uh, I was masked up, as was Jose, and he played two passes on bass, and that was it. And then he sang all of his parts one after another after another. We sent all that stuff to Abe, and Abe just doubled him. So there's, I think there's six Scott Shriners singing that oh, intro, wow. and there's six Abe Laboreal Juniors singing the intro. So there's literally 12 voices going on when you hear the record start, that's, that's both of them singing a lot. And then I come in with the lead. Right. Well, that's, that's fascinating. I, I, you know, I, I, I listened enough that I was trying to pick out voices, but I didn't realize I was picking out the same voice, you know, six times as it were. And look, I've talked to a, a lot of musicians over these last few months and the way that you're talking about, this is the way that a lot of it happens. You know, I mean, in, in a lot of cases, uh, you know, people weren't even thinking about recording anything, but then it's like, oh, what do you think about this? And, you know, everybody's able to just do their stuff remotely. You know, I mean, there's the way you're talking about in the hallway distance wise, but also it's, you can, you can send the drum tracks from anywhere. So there's no reason not to do it. And, you know, it, it really opens up who you're able to collaborate with. It's not like, all right, I've got the studio for, you know, four hours on, on sunset on a Tuesday afternoon. So uh, who's, who's willing to drive over from the Valley, you know? So it's, yeah. uh, it, it's great to be able to, you know, get those kind of collaborations. And uh, I think that, uh, that, I don't know, that must be freeing for you that you don't have to think about like, who's in town right now, you know? It's more like, oh, who do I think would be the best for this? Let's see, see what they're up to right now, you know? That's right. And, and to be clear, I started the track here. So the, the song, I would say kind of, I say this a lot, it marinated in my imagination for quite a while as I was writing it. And something really strange happens with me. I don't know if you've ever heard anything like this. It's weird. It's like kind of some strange little thing that happens. I start to hear the final record in my head before I've recorded one thing. 
Wow. So I hear sort of like the, the arrangement, the density of it, what instruments are in it, what instruments aren't in it, the total sound of it, the sound of the vocal. And I start uh, picturing the whole thing. But that process takes a little while. It comes to me in sort of bits and pieces. And then it falls together around the time when I'm supposed to record it. And then when that happens, then it's sort of more mechanical, like I'll put down rough drums here on my computer, right, right here in my <laughs> studio, Bad Manners here, M-A-N-O-R-S. Then I'll, I'll put in, um, you know, a rough guitar, you know, like a single guitar. Then I'll do the bass, a rough bass. And then I'll do a rough vocal and I'll send that uh, to the guys to get them to learn it. And you build from there, you know, when, when all is said and done, it took me one day to record everything, but it took me months to sort of marinate the whole thing. Does that make sense? It's weird. No, it absolutely does. Uh, it's, uh, you know, as someone who uh, appreciates listening to music, I, I love the idea. I, I don't think I would ever be able to synthesize it in my head. Like I couldn't even come up with a bad demo in my head, much less a finished record. But uh, I love the idea of, of it working that way. And, you know, it, it's definitely you, you hear about, you know, talented musicians who, you know, never really learn how to read music or anything. They're like, yeah, just it, I could hear it in my head. There you go. <laughs> Brian Ray right there, you know, and it's just like, you know, because who's really going to sit down and, and teach Eddie Van Halen how to do what he did? You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I kind of want to try to make a sound like this. And it's like, well, nobody else can do that you know, yeah. and he couldn't even teach his son Wolfgang how to do it, you know, because it's just, it's all up there. And if it's not up there, you're not going to be able to, to, uh, you know, recreate it. So, uh, I think that's, that's an interesting way to, uh, imagine it. And, uh, so the, uh, the, the song in your head, just as good as what the finished product was, or, uh, did you, did you have any trouble getting it to be what you wanted it to be? It actually sounds better than what I had <laughs> in my head because I can't really, uh, paint with the great enough detail right. <laughs> that will give me Abe Laboreal singing in his yeah. superfluous way. Or Scott Schreiner nailing the bass that I put a rough version down, but yeah. then he takes it like 20% better. And then he sounds like a god because he's he's a god. You know, so you you can't actually come close in your mind. You can hope. You sure. But, yeah, you just sort of shoot for good and, and then your friends make it better. Uh, when, uh, you know, sort of all, talking about all this different instrumentation, I thought it was interesting when I was reading about, you know, when you're uh, out on the road with uh, Sir Paul McCartney, uh, you are you play guitar, backing vocals, and you'll you'll pick up the bass when, when he picks up a guitar or he goes over to the piano. So I can imagine that that's you know, I was I was talking about the nice hat before. I'm sure you know wearing that many hats at this point isn't that hard for you, uh, and I, it's probably why it, you said you've been with him uh, for 20 years. You and Abe, I assume it's uh, largely the same musicians. I think when somebody like Paul McCartney knows, oh, I can count on the these people. Uh, I was going to say these guys, but you you know that's not always the case that it's just guys in in anybody's band. So he gets to a point where he can count on them, and I think that's probably why it's like, oh yeah, yeah, go go over there and pick up the bass. You know, I'm decided I'm going to do this now. So that has to be kind of great to have that kind of collaboration. Somebody that trusts you for 20 years. Yeah, I mean, it says more about him than any of us. I mean, he's a trusting, big spirited genius. Okay, so let's just. Sure. Clarify, he's a genius. 
And, um, but he's also a good human and um, he's not looking for karaoke. He doesn't want us to duplicate the record like perfectly. Yeah. He's living in real time, playing these music, these songs. He's playing this music as it feels to him today. And he might play the piano a little different every night on a certain song, or he'll add this little ad lib, or he'll, you know, he'll riff out on guitar much longer than usual. But we've all yeah. got to be there to follow him and to support him and, he trusts us. So yeah, it's an amazing thing that he trusts us. Uh, and obviously, you know, before you have that opportunity, I'm sure, you know, just reading there, you, there'd been plenty of uh, success and great opportunities in your career before that. But when you have that first opportunity, uh, you know, I don't know the first time you play with him, I'm just sort of wondering, is there that moment of like, all right, I know that this is a beetle, but I have to, you know, I have to calm down a little bit because, uh, you know, he's, he's just a guy like everybody else. And uh, I just, I just have to do what I, you know, I'm here for a reason, you know? Absolutely. You know, you forget that last part. I'm here for a reason. All you're <laughs> struck with is, oh my God, I won't look at him because if I look at him, then I'll screw up. So yeah. for the first six months of my touring with him, uh, to say nothing of the first six days of rehearsing with him, once we got out there and played, I just said, like, don't look at him. Just look <laughs> down. you got a lot to do, Brian. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> don't fuck it up. Yeah. So, you know, you just sort of um, do your yeah. very best to uh, keep your eye on yeah. the and the ball and, and don't fumble the ball, you know, you know, in uh, you know, in spinal tap, when they put the, uh, the piece of tape on the floor that says Cleveland, you basically have a piece of tape that says, don't fuck it up, Brian. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> don't look. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, uh, you know, just, uh, I don't know, that's got to be a tremendous opportunity. And, you know, I, I, I want to talk about your other song that you have out right now in a moment. But just one last thing about Paul. I mean, I saw him, it was a few years ago. And I don't know how old he is, 75. And just, you know, I, it was like almost a three hour show. And I, you know, I've seen I've seen guys that are literally half his age that they have trouble doing 90 minutes. And you're like, I mean, I guess it was a good concert, but really 75 minutes, like, what was that? And it was just like, and it, you know, when you're, when you're Paul McCartney and you have, you know, you have the Beatles songs, you have the wing songs, you have this, you have all this stuff, you have the solo songs. And then you're there in the moment and you're like, oh my God, he played everything. And then the drive home, you're like, well, there's you know, like four or five more that he must've run out of time for, you know? And it, it's, it's so crazy, you know, I mean, it, and to think about the funny thing is like to think about uh, seeing him at Dodger stadium, I think with like the next year, I also saw guns and roses at Dodger stadium and both bands of course do live and let die. And so I, I can think about like both of them. It's almost like they were trying to outdo each other with the, uh, with the pyro and the fireworks and everything, you know, Paul's like, yeah, but you know, I wrote it. So let me, let me show you how it's really done. Axel, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a very different thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Paul, it's an embarrassment of riches with him he's got such an incredible canon of music as you said all of his solo yeah career which he's still you know very productive he's got a new record coming out uh in, in december wow uh yeah i know it just came up all of a sudden he texted me one day says hey brian you know i'm gonna do his accent here please do <laughs> no i'm not gonna do that that's all you get two words but he said you know i've been in uh lockdown here in the studio at home in England and one thing led to another I've got a new solo album I'm putting it out soon uh, cheers love, love you man you know it's just like wow you That's know and I just come away from that text stream going like 
And I answered, I've got new stuff too. Like, well, I'm not yeah. Paul, but anyway, I come off of the stream and I just say like, God bless him. He's 79 now. Wow. He's 79. I, I don't know. Whatever he is. Yeah. It's remarkable that he still has so much passion for music and that he's creating fresh new music and that he's inspired every day to start writing a song. He's one of those guys, unlike me, who's always in process, whether it's writing, recording, or mixing, he's always at it, you know, always, 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 always. Yeah, no, and, and you know, hearing that, just sort of like, oh, yeah, there's there's going to be a new Paul McCartney album. You, you just so many, uh, during, you know, as, as these months have gone on and people have been sort of, you know, staying inside more and more, it's like, before you knew it, like things that you didn't hear about at the beginning of the year, it's like, oh, you know, there's a new Bruce Springsteen album. There's a new ACDC album, you know? And it's just like, it's like, yeah, cause why not? Nobody's, nobody's touring. I mean, you know, you have scant concerts here and there in some places where, you know, it's deemed safe and they, you know, you'll hear about large outdoor, not large, but you know, you'll hear about bands that will play in some places. Like I've talked to people who've played in places like Colorado where, you know, it's wide open and all that, but in general, everybody's home. So you might as well uh, try to make something out of it, you know, and, and it's like either either I could record a new album or I could take up cro crochet or something, you know, <laughs> or a cult. Uh, yeah, but anyway, it's, it's a time to start a cult. That's true. <laughs> or join one. Start. Yeah, that's one. true. It, it's a little easier. I think yeah. that it's more lucrative to, to start one than yeah. join one. Right. It exactly. It costs a lot to join a cult. It's yeah. it's much better to anyway. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it's amazing. And to me, like. I think this ACDC record is going to be crazy. It's yeah. going to be huge with the uh, the golden lineup back together, you know, with uh, with Brian singing and with Cliff on bass and yeah. Phil back on drums. That's bananas. And then the new Bruce Springsteen record with the E Street Band is nuts. Have you seen that documentary? You know, I haven't seen the documentary. I, I have had the album for, I guess it's about a month now, and I've listened to it a lot, but uh, I do want to watch that. Uh, I, I have an iPhone, so I know I have a, I have Apple TV Plus for free. I just yeah. have to sign into it and, and find it. But uh, I've, I've heard that the documentary uh, is great. I, I mean, I know the album's great. And he did a great, like, solo, solo album just last year. Yeah. And so when I first I heard he was going to do another record, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. He's home. He might as well have done a solo album. But it's like, no, it's with the E Street Band. So, you know. It's tremendous. I mean, you you see this this thing with the E Street Band, much like ACDC, where, you know, there is no faking. There is no substitute for decades together. What that does for your trust system, like we were talking about with Paul, what that does for your comfort in playing with each other and knowing each other, knowing the strengths of each person and how to bring out those strengths, you know, it's remarkable. So do check out that dog. Oh, no, I, I, yeah, I definitely will. Uh, and, you know, since we're talking about the E Street Band, I know that uh, someone who has been a, a very vocal supporter of yours is little Steven, Steven Van Zandt, of course. Uh, he has that uh, underground garage channel on Sirius XM. And I believe the notes tell me that six of your recent songs have been, quote, the coolest song in the world on that channel at different times. So you have six of the coolest songs in the world. Talk about, first of all, getting that you know that 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 nickname for the songs but also you know having somebody like steven be so supportive yeah it's bananas i mean so i met steven a long time ago backstage after a show you know after a show with paul and 
he, you know, I had had solo records out since 05. Well, this guy has heard everything and knows everything. And he comes up to me like, you know, like a, a guitar fan at a music shop. I mean, he's like, well, what kind of guitar are you using on that? You know, like he was so into it. I'm going like, damn. And he's so cool and he's so accessible, very bright. And as you know, if you've heard him and many of us had on his sure. great uh, uh, radio station or anywhere else, he's a real musicologist. He loves music and he has great taste. And so that when um, many years ago, I, I had a band called The Bayonets and we were just going to go about uh, releasing a series of singles with no great big goal, just to do it for fun and for right. free. This is my buddy, Oliver Lieber, uh, who happens to be the son of the great Jerry Lieber of Lieber and Stoller, who basically wrote the foundation of rock and roll. They wrote like, you know, Hound Dog and right. uh, Under the Boardwalk and, uh, you know, uh, so many great songs, Jackety Yak, Jailhouse Rock. They just wow. did so yeah. many great songs. Anyway, Oliver and I wrote a, a series of songs. The first one was going to be released on Valentine's Day. I think this was back in 2013. And I released, the. we did a fun video for it, which is hilarious. Uh, and uh, we put out the video and the song on Valentine's Day just to whoever would like it. You know, we didn't have a yeah. label or anything. And I get a message, a direct message from Maureen Van Zant, who I don't think I'd even met yet, uh, saying, hey, Brian, I've just played this song for Steven and he's bananas over it. Can I get your email? He wants to email you tomorrow. Wow. And I'm like, okay, great. So, you know, February 15th, the next day, I get an email from Steven saying, who is this? What is this? Where can I get some more? Wow. Who's singing? What in the heck is the Bayonets? I'm going to play it on my radio. Do you mind if I do an edit? If you say no, it's okay. I'm going to play it anyway. Wow. Thank you, Steven. And it's like, and then I got off of that email just going like, oh, like I had that feeling of that when you're, life changes channels and something big happened. And that was the beginning of this relationship. And with the Bayonets, we had seven coolest songs in the world. Oh, okay. And then when the Bayonets went on hiatus and uh, Oliver got busy doing his stuff and I went on tour doing my stuff. Well, we rode that album, the Bayonets for over a year and a half. Maybe, no, wait, for over two years. Wow we just kept putting out singles that they kept loving. And um, so all that time later, then Steven reached out to me and said, I was wondering if you'd like to do a solo singles deal with Wicked Cool Records. And wow. I was like, oh, hell yeah, you yeah. know? And so that uh, started in seven, 2017 and here we are uh, 10 songs later. Yeah, it's interesting when you think about, you know, some of those albums that uh, have so many singles. I mean, you can you can isolate ones from obviously, you know, some of the biggest artists. But when you think about, you know, bands who have tremendous overall success, but then they have that one record, like a perfect example would be, I think it's 1987, uh, In Excess have that record kick. It has like eight singles on it. And they were all like in the top 10. And around the same time, Def Leppard's Hysteria album, they have like four or five number one singles. And it's like, 
you know, it's just like these these bands are great as as a whole, but sometimes you just have this album. It's like the perfect moment. You have the perfect people working on it. So yeah, the idea of putting out singles for two years, it's like, well, if you like that, do you think you'll like this? You know, and then when you listen to albums that have all those great singles, usually the the other songs that aren't singles, it's not like they're filler. Like, oh no, these are great songs too. You know, they just, there were only so many singles you could put out at one time, you know? Yeah, when you have a, a band like Def Leppard, like you said, or ACDC on Back in Black, or, um, you know, any number of other big records like that, you have a label supporting you. And the Def Leppard album didn't go bonkers when it first came out. Right. You know, it wasn't until I think it was the single called Animal. And it was way after the thing was used. I think it got picked up for something. Yeah, I think Women was the first single, which is a song that they'll play now, but it didn't catch on like at all. Animal okay. did, and obviously, obviously, you could, I'm, I'm I'm agreeing with you. I think Animal's the one that did well, but it wasn't until like all of a sudden when you have like a you know pour some sugar on me, you know, and that went bananas. Then you know, love her, love love bites, love bites. Yeah, I mean, it was just like it was so many great singles. Now I would love to hear that album remixed and remastered, yeah. and 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 dry it up about 30%, you know, get some of the, the eighties stuff. Yeah. The sonic experience of that record. I would love that. I don't know if that's in the cards, but I mean, if it sounded more like high and dry or pyromania. Well, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. With those songs, it would be bananas. Yeah. You know, those are, those are two albums that do sound very eighties, you know, I mean the, you know, in excess kick has like, you know, devil inside need you tonight, but those, those do feel a little bit more of the era. But uh, yeah, so uh, anyway, I mean, we, we could talk about other bands and other singles too, but I do want to talk about your, you have the other song out now, which yeah. uh, is, it's a Procol Harum uh, cover, uh, Whiskey Train, which obviously, you know, most people think of Procol Harum, myself included, you're going to think of Whiter Shade of Pale, but this is a great song. And I, I have to admit that I didn't really know the original, so I listened to it as well. And then I went back and listened to yours a couple more times. I'm not knocking Procol Harum, but, uh, you know, I was just, uh, I just wanted to see what it sounded like. And because I, in my mind, I'm like, I have to hear, is this, did you, you know, is this a song that's sort of like Whiter Shade of Pale? And it, it isn't. So uh, it makes me realize that I don't know that much about that band, but I do know that this is a great song. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about who you collaborated with and where this song came from. I mean, it's, it's not like it's a it's a staple of you know classic rock even even like satellite radio classic rock where you know there's like that deep tracks channel. Uh, this is such a deep track that I don't think I've ever heard it on the deep tracks channel. You know. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. It's like it's so weird. Okay. So I was approached by a friend of mine, Carla Olson, who you hear is the uh, the doyen who I sure. asked to sing lead vocal on this version, my B side of Whiskey Train, uh, Wicked Cool Records. Yeah, she called me up and said, Brian, I'm doing an album uh, and the theme is train songs. And here's, would you like to do a duet with me? And I said, sure, what do you have in mind? <laughs> and she said, well, here's a list of cool train songs that we love. And it was a great list. I mean, it was like the birds and Dylan and it was sure. like all the great stuff, but kind of an Americana vibe. And I said, all those are really great. Would you be open to trying something different. And I said, there's this song by Procol Harum called Whiskey Train. Because my head just went like, what songs are cool that have train in the title? Yeah. And she said, I've never heard it, but you know, send it to me. And, uh, and now 
flash back some many years ago, I used to play it in my high school band. Oh, wow. <laughs> I had this cool high school band. Very good, I thought at the time. I don't know sure. what it would sound like if I heard them again now. And we did some of the hits of the time, you know, album-oriented rock of the time. But we kind of focused more on, we didn't care if they were hits. We did right. what we wanted so we could do be, uh, deep track stuff. And I love this song because it's just a real brutal, like, badass guitar riff. And then the lyric comes in and it's like, it's kind of cool too. I mean, the, the, the lyric is as sweaty and nasty as the guitar lick. It's about a guy who's finally hit the end of the road with his drinking. Oh, and right. he's yeah, going to yeah. swear it off. And I thought, that's cool. I'm a sober dude. I've been sober for a very long time, thank God. Yeah. At, uh, at 33 years. Wow. But anyway, I, I sent that to them and they said, oh, rockin', we love it. And I go, well, if it's okay, can you sing, Carla, can you sing in the original key? Can you sing these notes? And she goes, yeah, no problem. I have to warm up and I'll do it. And uh, she said, uh, yeah, I'm in. I said, okay, so I'm going to start a track. So I did the track over here, did it all in a day. And then she came over here and sang it. I played you know, all that stuff, the guitar, yeah. uh, fake drums, bass, keyboards, saying backgrounds, some percussion. And then, then we gave it to a drummer to play live drums on a great drummer named Eric Eldenius, uh, who plays with Billy Idol. And uh, he's Swedish and East Indian with a wow. mobile. <laughs> and he's a badass. So he played that great cowbell drum pattern. Yeah. And uh, it's got more cowbell than even Christopher Walken could say. <laughs> you know, that's the funny thing that you mentioned, that uh, my problem with the Procol Harum version, a little too much cowbell. I think, uh, you know, I listened to it with headphones on and I'm like, this year is all cowbell. I would like it just a little bit less. And yeah, I was actually thinking of Walken that, you know, he's got the... He's got the fever and uh, the only solution is more cowbell. I'm like, you know what? I could use a little bit less cowbell. Your version has the exact right amount of cowbell. So. Thank you. Well, you know what? I'll tell you why it is. I think that their version has too much cowbell. Okay. For you recording nerds out here, I'm going to tell you what happened. You listen to the record first, listen to theirs, listen to ours. You will hear lots of cowbell, more than you'll need for another year. Now, what happened is, uh, their great drummer, um, uh, BJ Wilson, rem remarkable drummer. He's like a lead drummer. He plays mostly fills. He'll play a beat when he has to, right. but it's mostly like, you know, he's a lead drummer. Anyway, on that recording, he kept a groove through the whole thing, but the groove called for playing the cowbell part with his right hand instead of a cymbal or a hi-hat. So the whole thing is through the whole thing. Now the mics around a drum kit hear a cowbell three times as loud as a cymbal. Yeah, that makes sense. And the engineer just basically couldn't control it. Yeah. When it came time for us to do ours, we had to noodle around with it because we had the same problem. <laughs> so we had to fill in the snare drum, turn the snare mics off and fill the snare snare mics with a sample of a snare so that we could get it just right. Yeah, it took a lot of work. 
Well, I, I, and look, the the uh, attention to detail is important because you want cowbell to be a good thing in your life. You don't you don't want the cowbell to uh, you know send you running for a, a different song. Uh, so yeah. so whiskey train. And uh, also got a new thing. Uh, I guess people can find those both at brianray.com and I'm sure they're available all the other places, but that always seems like the, uh, the best place to start. You go to brianray.com. And uh, I, I want to ask you about uh, two more collaborations. And I appreciate you being so generous with your time. Uh, it's been sure. fantastic talking to you. Uh, I was uh, reading that you did a version of the song One Heartbeat with Smokey Robinson. And I guess you actually wrote the song, which he originally did in the 80s. So I wanted to kind of talk about writing the song. Do you write it with him in mind or do you write the song? And how does that work? And then how it all comes full circle where you actually do a version of it with Smokey, who, by the way, still sounds exactly like Smokey the way you want him to sound. I think that was a couple of years ago. And I was just like, when's this song from? Because uh, Smokey sounds fantastic. Not that yeah, you didn't right. sound great. But I'm just talking, you know, just Smokey's been around for a little while and I love to hear that he still sounds great. Yeah, right. That's living right. He, he yeah. lives right. He takes great care of himself. Uh, he's a very healthy guy. He golfs all the time and he's just a really positive, amazing guy. Yeah. So 30 years ago, I was lucky enough to, to uh, write a hit song for him. It was the title of his album, One Heartbeat. It was the second single from that album. And it was a smash on three formats. And, you know, it was like another level of success I hadn't ever dreamed of before. I mean, first of all, the Beatles covered Smokey Robinson and yeah, the Stones covered Smokey Robinson. Yeah. And everyone else in the world covered Smokey Robinson. And he's a god to all of us. He's like the Paul McCartney of R&B, really. Think about sure. it. Absolutely. Writer, yeah. singer, arranger, player, and executive. So he's all of those things like, like, like a Paul or like a Willie Dixon was to the blues. Anyway, so Smokey, uh, he's doing a new album. This is before I have ever met him. He's doing a new album and some friends of mine are producing it. And I called my friends thinking, well, it's worth asking, could we submit a song? My songwriting partner, Steve Legasic and I, could we submit a song to Smokey? And they said, no, nah, don't bother, man. He's got a billion songs, you know, and they're all great. We can't even use them all. So thank you very much, but no. And I got off the phone all discouraged and I turned to my partner, Steve. I said, they don't want it. They don't want to hear from us. Now, all I had then was a title and a beat. The song wasn't even done. Yeah. And, and Steven turned to me and he said, let's do it anyway. And I went, you're a genius. That's awesome. And we set about writing the song. It took us two weeks to write it and record it. Did a really nice little demo of it. And on our way out of town, we were gonna go visit his folks. Steve and I dropped by the producer's office and handed them a, a, a cassette. Nice. Hand labeled cassette of one heartbeat and said, I know you said no, but we wrote one anyway, just for Smokey. So to answer your question, it was written just for Smokey. We imagine oh, I love that. Yeah. What would we what would we like to hear from Smokey? So we handed him the cassette, left town, went up to Yosemite, came back on a Sunday night, and there's a message on our voicemail saying, Brian, this is Rick and Peter. We love that song. We played it for Smokey. 
He loves that song. We want to do it just like your demo. Bring all your gear. We're going to be at Conway Studios Thursday, 32 track digital. See you there. And that was, that was it. Oh, that's great. And so all these years later, now, you know, I have this singles deal with little Steven and I asked him after my first single, what would you like me to try next? We had nice first success and they go, well, what about like a garage soul song? And so I'm like flipping through my mind and go like, well, soul, me, one heartbeat. Yeah. And then I think about the song and it's not, it's not, it's a slow jam and it's like a really mellow, like, yeah, you know, it's a slow jam. That is not garage. But I thought, well, you know, besides the record, there's a song in there. Let me, let me just see. And so I just decided, what if I put a double up the bap, 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 bap. And then I had my songwriting partner, Steve, come over here. And he said, what about an intro? He loved the idea of doing a garage version. Because, of course, we never did. Right, Steve right. just down and goes, da, 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 da. And I went, genius, again, Steven. And uh, that was it, man. We were off to the races. And then I called Smokey and said, hey, man, I did a version of our old song. <laughs> Would you want to come and sing a little something? He goes, yeah, man, sure. No problem. I'd love that. That's my Smokey impression. That's a great Smokey. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he, uh, we got a studio in town and he came over. And then I said, oh, I also did The Tears of a Clown, too. And he goes, oh, yeah, let me hear that. And he goes, damn who's that playing that bass he goes that's the that's like the new james jameson who was the great bass player from all the motown records and um i explained that was davy farragher from uh, elvis costello's band and he says damn and and he said yeah okay so what do you want i said well hey i mean you know we're not the righteous brothers we're not sam and dave we ain't singing to the same girl together whatever you feel like, you know, some ad libs or some harmonies or whatever. And he goes, okay, great. You want me to sing the second verse then? And I go, <laughs> yeah, that that's great. It. And he says, okay, man, let me just go out there. We had it all set up and the uh, mic set up and he'd already done one heartbeat and yeah, he just killed it. Oh, that's great. Sang, sang like five takes and we comp together our favorite stuff. And there he is singing half of the tears of a clown. Uh, as a uh, as a service to people watching us on YouTube, uh, because I'm here in my garage, uh, the back room of my garage, I literally had at arm's length a, a box of cassettes. So when you're talking about a cassette, that's that's what this is. Uh, in case uh, anybody uh, doesn't, you know, never saw one before, uh, and uh, you know, it, it may not have had the best sound, but uh, it was the first medium that I started buying records or albums on. Uh, you know, it's, so when I was a kid, I had I boxes and boxes of cassettes, and uh, it's nice to see that uh, you know that uh, it, it was very practical because you could just hand it to someone. Now it'd be like, oh, I'll email you a link, but you know what? They might never listen to that link. But if you get handed a cassette or a CD a few years later, uh, that goes a long way. The last thing I want to ask you about is uh, the Bayonets uh, did a song called Vagabond Soul that uh, featured uh, Steven Tyler, who everybody knows what a great singer Steven Tyler is. I don't need to say that out loud. He's also a tremendous harmonica player. 
I know they have that song on Permanent Vacation, Hangman's Jury. That is not the only time that he plays harmonica. It's the first time I noticed it. Uh, they did an MTV Unplugged where he played harmonica on it. So I know on your song, uh, of course, he sings, but he also plays harmonica. Uh, talk about how that comes about, uh, working with Steven Tyler. Yeah, right. So I, I had written a song, Vagabond Soul, um, most of it in a hotel on a day off in London while out there with Paul. And uh, I remember sending a little sort of digital track of just me playing the song to my then songwriting partner, Oliver Lieber, to consider for a, another bayonet song. And he goes, oh, this is great. Yeah, let's do it. So I came back to town. We finished the song together. We finished the lyric together. We loved how it turned off. And Oliver turns to me. It's always the partners. Oliver <laughs> turned to me and goes like, you know Steven Tyler, don't you? And I go, yeah. He goes, well, what, a, what about asking him to come and sing on it? And I went, genius. And I thought, you know, what's the worst that can happen? It's like smoky, you know, it's like whatever. They could say no. And then you just go, oh, bummer. Yeah. And uh, well, I, I waited for Stephen to get back to me and there was no reply. I thought, okay, well, that's a no. Yeah, sure. And I recognized I had the wrong number. Oh. I sent it to him again, This just copy and pasted the same message. And within 15 minutes, he was back. Are you kidding me? I'd do anything for you, man. I'm in. We're going to go in deep. When do you want to do it? And he shows up at, at the studio out in the valley, Oliver's studio, with a briefcase full of harmonicas, <laughs> all warmed up and ready to sing. He sang like for two hours. He wow. kept coming up with new ideas. Run it by again. Let me do this harmony thing. Okay, let me do this. Let me try that. And then uh, how about harmonica solo? And he played a killer harmonica solo. So he's just ridiculous. I mean, crazy talent and crazy energy. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I really only know what I've seen on stage or, uh, you know, videos and, uh, you know, obviously in interviews, we know uh, what a character he is. So uh, I can only imagine that experience, you know, being in studio with him for two hours, you know, that would probably have been, you know, uh, it, maybe not as informative as the Bruce Springsteen documentary you're talking about, but uh, just watching him, you know, kind of think out loud, you know, when you watch somebody who's that good at it, you know, I mean, I've worked with comedians. Uh, I've worked for a long time with the comedian, Dennis Miller, and he'll think about a joke and he changes one word and you're like, well, what was all that for? And then you hear him say, it, and you're like, oh yeah, that one word made all the difference. So, you know, when somebody's really good at what they do, they're like, no, I shouldn't sing that part like this. I should go a little bit more like that. And you're like, I mean, whatever you say, Steven Tyler. And then you hear it and you go like, oh yeah, he was right. He was a hundred percent right. You know? <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, you're so right. You know, it's it's fun to watch masters at work. Paul's the same way. Smokey the same way. Uh, Smokey's the master of the one word. I mean, he'll make the word the stand out in a way that you never imagined, you know. Well, the same was true uh, in, in this case. It's just like master, just a master. Yeah. yeah. Well, Brian, again, it has uh, been so much fun to just talk to you uh, about your music, but just music in general. Uh, when I when I uh, clicked on the link and started talking to you, I didn't think we would name check three albums from 1987, Permanent Vacation, Hysteria, and Kick, but there they are. And that's all in the sweet spot. All albums that I owned on cassette, by the way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, BrianRay.com, uh, Whiskey Train, 
And uh, I, I want to get the uh, title of the other one right. I know I have most of the words in my head. Uh, got a new thing. I, I, I would have let, I, I think I would have put them in the wrong order. Uh, got a new thing. Whiskey train, BrianRay.com. Brian, thank you so much. Uh, best of luck with uh, these songs. And I love that, uh, you know, when you have something new, I'll probably hear it on little Steven's channel, you know? So, uh, but uh, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Great talking to you, Christian. <laughs> Joining me now is Larry Studnicki of High Plains Drifters. They have a really fun song for the Christmas season called Santa, Bring My Girlfriend Back. Uh, Larry, welcome to the show. Thanks for talking to me today. Thanks very much for giving me this opportunity. Uh, so uh, let me just start with the name of the band. Uh, it, it seems obvious, but I'm going to assume that the name comes from the Clint Eastwood movie of the, I was going to say the same name, but of the very similar name, right? basically the same name it, the name it may have been the hundredth name that uh that i considered uh i spent countless hours driving north and south between my mother's home in maryland and in the new york city area one summer uh this a couple of summers ago trying to come up with a better name for the band um and uh this hit me i don't know if i was thinking about the movie at the time but this hit me and i liked it and I ran it by everybody and they said, go with it. Yeah, I think uh, it, it, it's it's what I thought of. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you'll end up with, uh, you know, obviously spending so many names and, you know, great band names. Uh, you know, it, it, oftentimes it's like, oh, it just kind of came to us, you know, and and uh, it's uh, it, it definitely stands out and it, it's uh, it's definitely a fun one. Uh, and then, you know, you have great bands that don't have the best names. And then you have bands that have such a good name, but then the band isn't that good. I mean, I remember once decades ago seeing a terrible band, but they had the name Furious George. And I'm like, that name is so good, but this terrible band stole it from a band who deserved it. You know, Foo Fighters should have been called Furious George, you know. Agreed. I've always admired bands that go a little out there like uh, the Dead Kennedys or, uh, yeah. or the Butthole Surfers. And I can't name any of their songs, but I will never forget those band names for as long. Yeah, time. no, that, yeah, that's a that's a great point. Yeah, I know. And, and the interesting thing with the Butthole Surfers, of course, is that uh, they did have that one song, which I don't think anybody knows the name of. But if you hear it, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, that, that one. Uh, that they were like the BH Surfers, you know, on radio. And I think I I, I think MTV might have actually called them by that name. So that's, you know, it's like, you don't want to be too clever of a band name, you know, because it's like, if you, if you put the wrong word in there and it's like, well, now we can't call your band what its name actually is, you know? So uh, I, I in think any... in general, you have to 
I Go think ahead. you just have to avoid trying to be too clever when you're doing music yeah. also. Yeah, right. No, exactly. I, I definitely uh, agree with that. Uh, you know, the uh, the lead singer of uh, Weezer, Rivers Cuomo, once said that he he had a, he had problem writing pop songs because he liked to put goddamn into songs that would be released as singles. So they would have to like, you know, do that radio edit, re-record thing where you change, you know, one word. And, it, and, and you know, it's like, I know it's a very specific skill set, you know, to just like, oh, that's how I express myself. Oh, but right, there's the business side of this where it's, you know, you're not really being a sellout if you're like, oh, well, if we want to play this on the radio, I guess you have people that, that don't want to do that either, though. You know, they're just well, like, you know. We, we faced that quandary. I wrote a, uh, <clears throat> I wrote in the band, recorded a song, which is really a rant about political correctness. It's on our debut album called First Amendment Blues. And the chorus of the song is the repeated use of the F word. Um, because it's about oh. the First Amendment and free speech, <laughs> right? So it makes perfect sense until you until you realize this is a really good song and we want to put it out to radio. And then you have to dumb it down by uh, <laughs> doing a radio edit and going with, uh, I think it's Screw You on the radio. Uh, but the radio, yeah. edit, radio edit got on the air, you know, so it's like, well, so so there you go. It's like, you know, you did have to make the change and it did, ha you know, it's like if you made the radio edit and then it's like, yeah, then no one played it. It was like, well, then why did I, why did I bend over like that? So that's great. That's, yeah. it's nice to see that there was that cause and effect. Uh, let's talk about uh, the song in particular, Santa Bring My Girlfriend Back. Uh, it uh, tells the story of a uh, distraught man who uh, like so many do, uh, you know, seek comfort uh, in in a glass or a bottle uh, this time of year, but specifically because his girlfriend was stolen by Santa Claus. Uh, talk a little bit where the idea came from and how quickly it all sort of came together for you. First, it, it helps to come from a family of relatively heavy drinkers. So. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was intimately acquainted with the evils of alcohol before I was old enough to drink and, and because of various things going on. Um, the song was written on December 26th, two years ago. Uh, I was the first one up on the morning after Christmas and the day before had involved some fairly explosive family drama on my side of the family, not my wife's. I was hosting some of my family. I'm not gonna go into details, but uh, there was an eruption and things happened. And uh, the next morning I was puttering around the kitchen and the first two or three lines of the song just literally fell out of my head. I grabbed the iPhone and I sang, I've been drinking way too much this Christmas. My friends all want to know the reason why. And then I started thinking, okay, well, that's first of all, factually true right now. And then why is this guy, not me, why is the narrator of the song drinking so heavily? And I, I just went with this idea that Santa Claus stole his girlfriend. So, and then the lyrics kind of wrote themselves. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, if you think about Santa through the years, uh, the opportunity is there to steal many a girlfriend and, uh, or, you know, or many of anything, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> in and out of your house. It's, it's a miracle. Yeah. Anyone has jewelry left in America or anywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's just, uh, you know, it, it's, it's like, you know, the, the, I guess TVs got harder to steal when they started getting mounted on the wall. So that might've, uh, you know, uh, might've worked in that way, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, I mean, as, as the Grinch taught us, it's not that hard to sneak around that night and just uh, take literally everything. But uh, uh, I think it's uh, I think that's what makes it a, a fun, catchy song, because that is not how we usually like to think of Santa Claus. I mean, uh, I saw I, I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus. Well, it turns out that that's actually daddy. It's not Santa Claus, you know. 
Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, we're not supposed to admit that on air, probably. But yeah, I mean, this, <laughs> this Santa Claus is clearly a little more of a worldly terrestrial Santa Claus than the ethereal spiritual guy that we think visits us. So, yeah, right. It, it's, uh, it, it, you it's know, you have to carnal needs and desires. And, you know, I don't know what happened to the prior Mrs. Claus that it's not the subject of the song, but, you know. If I had to guess, Mrs. Claus probably doesn't enjoy living at the North Pole. And, uh, and imagine has. a woman. The only reason I know women welcome the winter is that they get to break out all their coats and their boots. And they're big on that. <laughs> That's true. Coats and boots, right? You have a wife, so you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I know. I mean, and we live in Southern California. So, uh, you know, my wife has these scarves that uh, she just would love to be able to wear once, you know. And uh, oh, when, when, when your weather, I've noticed in places like Texas and Southern California, Typically, the 50s allows the women who have them to break out the furs, and they do. Yeah. They yeah. sweat, but they break them out anyway. Yeah, when uh, when UGG boots were all the rage, uh, it was like, yeah, it's like 50, great, that's uh, that's oh. perfect. And <laughs> and I grew up in uh, New York, but I've lived out here for 17 plus years now. So now for me, I'm like, you know, it's like in the 60s today, and I'm like, well, I, I, I think I need a, a thicker shirt, and I'm like, do I got to put on the jacket, you know? So, oh. uh, but it's good because it's at least at least it's festive, you know, and uh, it's uh, it, it, interestingly, it uh, it cools down just in time for. Or, you know, the the advice this year in places like Southern California is to have Thanksgiving outdoors, perhaps, but just in time for it to be the coldest day of the year with like a, a brisk high of 64, which in some places, you know, in like Michigan, it might be like, oh, how great would that be if we could have a 64 degree outdoor Christmas? But, uh, you know, here, that's a good like 20 degrees colder than it usually is on uh, on Thanksgiving. Uh, so. Uh, I talk a little bit about the instrumentation for the song. Uh, you know, there's, you know, uh, there's, uh, well, there's, it's basically got a little bit of everything and I'm not musically talented. I was going to start guessing what some of it was, but. I'm not musically talented either. I just, I write <laughs> lyrics and melody, write themselves right. in my head. And then I sit with the band and I tell them what I hear. This song was a little different. I didn't, other than the horns, which I want, I, I knew early on I wanted on the song, and I heard of the horn lines on the first verse are horn lines that I was able to write and convey to my producer who programmed some synth horns before we turned it over to the guys that did the real horns. I didn't, I didn't know whether I wanted this song to have acoustic rhythm guitars or, or whatever the sound was going to be. I sat with my producer, Greg Cohen, and one of our two guitarists, John Makem, and we played around with some ideas. Uh, John and Greg worked out the basic instrumentation. You'll hear, you'll hear a vibraphone on there, which John wrote the vibraphone parts. I think those are uh, programmed. Um, acoustic rhythm guitar, several layers of electric guitars. They're not, this is not, not big rock type electric guitars, but there are a lot of electric guitars on there. That's mostly Mike DeCampo, who's our other guitarist. Uh, the horns are what I heard in my head. Those were the last things added to the song. Uh, standard set of drums, uh, bass player, uh, and some brilliant keyboards work by uh, Charles Zarnecki, who's also a part of us. And uh, I know that, uh, I guess you guys recorded this when you're getting ready to record your second album, but talk about recording this song, which uh, from what I was reading in the notes, I guess you recorded this song and some others, uh, you know, over the summer, I think it said June. So is it, uh, is it hard to get into the Christmas spirit when it's, uh, it's the summer? Because, well, the song had, the song had been written in the winter. 
So it, the, the writing started the day after Christmas. So I was in a holiday mood. I finished the lyrics probably uh, over the course of, you know, between December and January of the next year, 2019. We got together uh, to demo the song this past June, worked on it in June, and then scheduled the studio time for early August. The band came in, everybody played simultaneously in their ISO booths. We didn't, we didn't do it one track at a time. And it just came together really fast. And I like to, I hate to use the phrase Christmas miracle, but we, we only did about five or six takes of the song and everyone went, we have, everyone, you know, we have what we need. We did a quick mix and everybody loved what they were hearing. And, and that was it for that one. Um, we did one other song that day, also came together in about five or six takes. I sang lead vocals the next day and then it was just mixing and adding the horns. It was incredibly fast. Yeah, and, and when things are going well like that and you do five or six takes, it's probably one of those things where if the first take had to be it for some reason, you know, because you were getting kicked out of the studio, it probably would have been would have been all right, you know? I mean, but it's like, okay, let's tweak these little things because you have the time, right? Exactly. I mean, it felt good after the first take. They were playing to my scratch vocals, not my final lead vocals. And uh, yeah, I mean, after that, a couple, you know, with the different guitars that are on it, we needed a few more tracks to get the different electric guitars on it. But probably after the first two takes, we had most of what we needed, which doesn't happen often enough. Yeah, and so it's a combination Christmas miracle, and because of when you recorded it, it's also like a Flag Day miracle, I guess, because it's the only day I can think of in February, or maybe a Father's Day miracle, and, you know? and an anti and an anti COVID miracle, because yeah, know, we you know we were all in one big studio. I mean, there were isolation booths, and guys had their masks on in between the takes, but it was the first time we'd had the band together in probably a year and a half, and and just having everyone in one spot like that felt phenomenal. Yeah, I've talked to a few musicians who have recorded, you know, during this time. And a lot of it, you know, is, you know, the bassist sends that track, the drummer sends this track, you know, all that. But then sometimes when you're in studio, it's like, well, you know, he's going to have to go stand out in the hallway and, you know, because you have to kind of spread out a little bit, which uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, again, not being musically talented, just sort of watching, you know, when you see those kind of behind the scenes videos of, of bands recording, you see them like all playing together. It's like, that's, that's what, you, that's what a music fan like myself wants it to be like, even though, you know, in all honesty, especially these days, it's very much not like that. But you know, when you, yeah. when you see like, uh, you know, like, like Aerosmith filmed the making of their pump record, uh, Metallica filmed the making of the, the black album that they did. And so you see that they're all playing together. Uh, you know, when I'm a kid, I'm just like, Oh, that must be how it is. And then you realize it's, it's not even remotely like that, you know? Yeah. I mean, we, We've done it the other way. Uh, the first half of our debut album was was recorded more on a track by track basis, but the band's lineup hadn't really gelled at that point. About halfway through the first album, the lineup gelled, and for the last few songs, uh, Greg Cohen, who was producing the last half of that album, said, Let, "Let's just bring everybody in and do it the old-fashioned way." And this particular group of guys just they just click. I mean, they uh, they 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 get each other, they play off each other, and it's been phenomenal since since we started putting everybody in a room together. Uh, yeah, interestingly, I was reading that this is actually the High Plains Drifters' uh, second Christmas song. So yeah, you I did never, one a few years ago, right? I, yeah, I never I never thought I'd do a second one. Uh, the first one uh, is a little, probably over five years old. It's been on the radio to a limited extent, and we're 
largely, I'd say, unsigned. We have a little bit of help on this release from Universal Music on the distribution side. We're not signed to them as artists, but we're getting a little bit more of a push on this song. Everything else we've done has been self-released and self-promoted. So that song is not all that well known. It leans a little more in the in the kind of Eagles rock direction and a little bit of Americana. There's even maybe a little bit of a bluegrass feel to it. Um, that one's called Get Me Home by Christmas Eve. And it, 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 it's a strong song. It made it onto a uh, Nashville released compilation last Christmas, along with Keith Urban's Christmas outing and Casey Musgraves. So, yeah, see, that's great to get that kind of attention. And I think, you know, if if you specifically you, but if anyone is able to come up with a, a good Christmas song, I mean, you know, yes, it's like the the checks only come, you know, the one month a year. But when you think about uh, Elmo and Patsy, those are the guys who did uh, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, you know. Uh, what was that like 35 years ago? Uh, the fact that you know you have that that one moment is like, oh, let's take a crack at a Christmas song, and you know it's, you know the the bad ones, well they stand out and you, you don't really hear them again. But uh, you know it's a lot of like you know, my my wife loves to have the Christmas station on uh, here in, in California, Southern California. It starts earlier and earlier every year, and this year the excuse was like, well, you know, it's a hard year for everybody, so it was like November first. So, uh, yeah. and you'll hear some of these songs, and you're like, oh yeah, I forgot about this person. Boy, were they smart when they uh, did a Christmas song or a Christmas album because you know we don't necessarily think of some of these artists as much as we used to. But, uh, you know, they, you know, they, they did, they, they were smart enough to do the Christmas album. I mean, yeah. you know, Mariah Carey has all those number one hits, but what songs do you hear the most of hers are her two Christmas songs, you know? Uh, yeah. And the, the big one of hers is, I think now the single most played Christmas single. I mean, more yeah. than Christmas, more than the classics from the forties and fifties and sixties. More I, than I, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. More than Grandma Got Run Over, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't set out. I'm certainly not with this second song, sure. my girlfriend back. I didn't set out to write a Christmas song, but I will admit to being a huge fan of the Hugh Grant movie about a boy where, you know, the, he's, I was, he, was going to mention oh, that, that well, how his character lives off the, lived the, off the royalties from his den. And his, so there's his dad wrote a Christmas song, uh, Santa's super, super play. play. Yes. yes. And uh, I was going to mention that you can actually, yeah, you can live a, a very irresponsible adult life where you don't have to work. I'm a little, I'm a little past that opportunity. <laughs> I'm old and responsible already, but I can always hope that my daughter might see some of these royalties in 30 or 40 or. Oh, that'd be years. great. Yeah, yeah, I know, and that's uh, it's such a that's such a tremendous movie, and uh, I know, watch they, it every year at this. They, they adapted it into a TV series and they made him uh, really? so much. Yeah. They made it so much more likable with the guy who was in it because you know, the, look, the, the whole thing of where he's basically going out and cruising this uh, single moms meeting uh, and pretending that he has a, a son. Uh, they abandoned that in like the pilot of the TV version. Well, it's, and I'm not, like, oh, it's not politically correct. Today. No, 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 no. There's a level on which as a guy, you have to go, this character is a genius, right? Yeah. And, and and that's it. He's just like I just have to pretend that I have a kid, and uh, I don't know. I think that uh, I, I, uh, and, I, have, I have a few friends you may too, you know, our age. I'm a little older than you, but guys who never married are commitment phobic, and you could almost see them in the Hugh Grant role in this. You know, like they're yeah. crazy enough that they might have had that same brainstorm that I have to pretend I have a kid and then I can meet single moms. 
Yeah. And and that the the original book, of course, comes from Nick Hornby, who did High Fidelity. So, I mean, yeah. obviously, you know, he's, it's uh, it's someone who, whose uh, mind I, I think if we did a Venn diagram, there's a lot of like what he thinks and what I think that sort of overlaps, especially, you know, just sort of the the lists and making the the mixtapes in uh, in High Fidelity and uh, just just the desire to not work in <laughs> about a boy, you know, so. Uh, in, in any case, uh, I was uh, reading you talking about some other Christmas songs, and uh, it was an interview that was sent to me by the publicist, and you talked a little bit about uh, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, which I think is a great Christmas song. When you listen to it, it, it is a little bit of a bummer, but you pointed out that you don't like, I guess, that they've uh, they've tried to cheer it up a little bit over the years, right? I, I, I love the, I don't, I don't know who wrote it but I know that the only version of it that I ever want to listen to is the first one that Sinatra put out where he sings um, on where the line goes until then we'll have to muddle through somehow. Yeah. Now, you know, back, I, I'm guessing the song was maybe written somewhere around the time of the second world war. And this, you know, it's yes. guys, that are, guys that are away from home, can't get home to see their loved ones. And that sentiment, you know, until then we'll have to muddle through somehow is speaks perfectly to that time and that feeling that I, I think the troops overseas must have had. And to take that and turn it into hang a shining star upon a, the highest bow. It's like, you know, there, about the highest bow. There, you know? There's a happy medium. It's like, all right, you you want to try to not be so depressing, but yeah, but then the shining star. And yes, it, it was definitely a, a product of being written in World War II because the original lyrics, basically they say until next year. Because they're just like trying, like, look, this is a, this is a terrible Christmas. We get it because you know you, the 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 boys out on the the front line and all that. It's like, but here's this song, and uh, you know, think about how next boy, next Christmas, that's going to be a good one. You know? or, so like, it's like, or, or I'll be home for Christmas, same yeah, era, same right? Season. Exactly. And even yeah, my, even our song, "Get Me Home by Christmas Eve," that it was, I deliberately wrote it from the perspective of a guy who arguably could be an American serviceman stuck overseas in some place full of sand who's trying desperately to get home by Christmas Eve. Um, same, same basic idea. Yeah, no, I know. And then the, the of course, uh, I'll be home for Christmas has sort of the, you know, the uh, M. Night Shyamalan uh, big reveal at the end, the big surprise where it's like, I'll be home for Christmas, but only in my dreams. So I actually won't be home for Christmas. Uh, but uh, try to try to cheer up on the next song that you hear after this. Uh, so Anyway, uh, as I referenced, uh, I guess you guys, when you got together, you recorded the the next album. Uh, tell us what we can expect from that when when it, when the plan is for it to come out. You know, I've talked to a lot of musicians that have had plans for when things would get released, and uh, they've been adjusted a little well, bit over the last few well, months. But what are your what are you guys thinking? We're I'm hoping that we'll be largely done in January. That by then we'll be. Uh, into mixing the last half of the album. We're pretty far along with the first half of the album. I mean, I'm, I'm being optimistic. We have Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up. And one of the interesting things that happened, at least here in the New York City area, um, by the time we got into the studio in August and then started booking things into September to mix and things like that, the, the studio that we worked in was, they were jammed. It's like It's like all of a sudden every musician woke up and said, screw it, I've had enough of this, I'm getting back in the studio, I'm going to start working again. And so the studios have been pretty busy. 
Um, I'm just guessing that we'll be able to get the time that we need to get the band back in. But you know, if we're lucky, this would be a late Q1 release, but it's more uh, probably slips to Q2 just because, you know, nothing ever works out the way you plan. And you never know that that could be uh, that could be the studio calling, uh, letting you know how much time there is. Oh, know, that so. was that was my daughter looking to be picked up, probably. <laughs> well, well, then, by all means, we'll uh, wrap this up momentarily. Uh, you know, one well, of the things I did want to do, she's she's got homework to do. <laughs> you know, she has, well, the home, she's off today and tomorrow was parent teacher conferences. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, uh, I did want to talk a little bit about, you know, the, the sort of the different sounds uh, that the band has and uh, some of uh, what the influences were for you personally, you know, I mean, uh, as a singer, but just also the different kinds of music you liked, you know, growing up and, and I, the rest of the band and how that kind of, you know, came to represent itself the, in the band. The core of the band are guys that grew up with the music of the 60s and 70s. Um, and I grew up in the DC suburbs of Maryland. Uh, I was heavily influenced by classic rock and soul because DC is overwhelmingly African American. There were basically two kinds of radio stations where I grew up, rock and soul. And I, I thank God there were, because uh, we listened to some of the greatest music of any generation, I think, uh, with just, just those two choices. Um, in the 70s, for me, it was the, the, the Eagles sound and some of the Southern rock bands like Marshall Tucker. Uh, but I think my, I don't know if it influences me, but my favorite decade has probably got to be the 80s, starting with uh, the new wave and punk groups that came up in the late 70s and in through the early 80s, and then everything that came after that. Uh, I've never really listened to jazz. I, I don't listen to, I try not to listen to country because I think that there's a enough influence from groups like the Eagles and Marshall Tucker and some of the things that I, I write that I don't want it pushed anymore in that direction. Um, but, you know, you mentioned uh, Weezer earlier, not an 80s band, more like a, a 90s and 2000s band, yeah. but I could listen to those guys pretty much all day long. Um, even even the, the more recent album with the covers is a phenomenal album. Yeah, uh, um, I don't know that they influenced me, uh, but uh, the Style Council, Paul Weller's. Oh, second. sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, uh, I like bands like that that have an absolutely unique sound. New Order would be another one. I'll never write a song like New Order. Um, maybe I could do something a little bit like the Style Council. I mean, they had so many different kinds of instruments going on. And yet at their core, they were, you know, it was the, the, the core is a rock band. I, I think it's still fair to say that. But yeah. brought in horns and strings and, you know, the keyboard. And, uh, I don't, I don't usually say to myself, this song has to be this genre. Although when I wrote First Amendment Blues, I, I took it to my producer and I said, this is basically a Ramon song. And if you go back to our debut album and listen to it, it's basically a Ramon song. Um, on this Christmas song, I knew that I wanted horns on it. I knew that I wanted it to sound like something that Sinatra or Dean Martin might have done today if they were still alive. But again, with uh, at, at the core of the band, you know, kind of a rock band, bass, guitars, and drums. Um, there's one song that, the song that we recorded on the same day as the Christmas song absolutely bears all the influences of my growing up listening constantly to the Eagles. Um, uh, and, but then I was in the studio yesterday with, with our producer, Greg Cohen, and Mike DeCampo, who's one of the two guitarists, working on a song of mine for which I 
I didn't have any instrumentation in mind, really. I had the lyrics and melody. And after I sang it to Greg, probably back in August, he said, he said, I hear this as a bossa nova tune. And I said, I never would have heard it that way, but I trust you and I'm willing to try that out. And with Mike DeCampo's help uh, this past Saturday, uh, we walked away after about two or three hours of fiddling around with, you know, what are the chords that we hear? What are we looking to do? We, we have a, we have a pretty awesome bossa nova tune in the works. Now that that's going to be an outlier on this record. Sure. Um, but um, why not? You know? Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of the beauty of it is that uh, it can sound like whatever you want it to. And, you know, you're, you guys are all working together to sort of put out the cohesive album and look, I mean, different sounds is sort of thinking back to what you were saying before, you know, when you mentioned new order and style council, I was thinking about how, you know, in that time period, that's what they used to, basically call like college rock or you know because the term alternative i think in hindsight means something different now but when it would be like you know new order or something like the ministry that only sound like only the ministry sounded like the ministry you know yes you then have bands that try to sound like them later but that's not really the point you know and it was just like this unique mix of you know when i when i was a you know when i was a a bit younger in my earlier teens i was a big more like hard rock headbangers ball guy but then you know mtv also had this show called 120 minutes which was like a lot of it was weird and some of it's probably still too weird for me but it was the stuff you didn't hear anywhere else you know and i grew up in new york city so it was like there there wasn't like a cool like not you know i mean i didn't grow up in new york city but those were the stations that i had so i didn't get like you know that kind of you know college radio experience the, the the bigness of the market works against you yeah you almost need to be in some place like athens georgia where there's going to be some awesome college radio station back in the day playing uh the b-52s and uh yeah and and, and you know rem coming out of that era i mean and, and who could be a more unique sound than the band that gave us rock lobster and love shack you know i mean you know i saw, I, I saw them on their last tour Oh, that's great. Yeah. I, I've actually never seen them, but it was just like the first yes. time you hear Fred yeah. Schneider, you're like, oh, this is the lead singer. Okay. This is different. Right. You know, <laughs> well, he, he had, he had those, he had those female singers for a reason. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. It's a, and, that's and a great point. When we first started recording, I, I, I said, you know, I said, we need some really strong female backup singers because I really can't sing at all. And in fact, I, I didn't sing the first uh, four songs that we recorded because I had no faith in myself. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, w- I would be the same way. I know I'm not a good singer, but uh, I would love to have a bunch of musicians behind me. My my poor wife, who has had to suffer through uh, karaoke nights for my birthday, uh, you know, far too many times. And hopefully before too long, uh, you know, <laughs> karaoke is exactly one of those activities that uh, we don't get to do right now because you're in a tiny room. Everybody's, you know, screaming and spitting into the air as much as they possibly can and sharing a dirty microphone. But uh, uh, so... Not a karaoke guy, but I feel your pain. I mean, there's, yeah. Oh the no, fact, I the fact look, that we can't I'm, do any of the things we used to do. You know. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, I'm a karaoke guy because I'm just not a good singer. Is my point. You know. So it's like if 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 you love cheap tricks, surrender. Don't listen to me sing it because it might make you hate the song all of a sudden. The the thing that I never really appreciated about singing until I, the guy that produced the first half of my first album, Charles Arnecki, who's still with us. He forced me to sing a song that's on that record called Summer Girl. And I said, I said, Charles, I can't sing. And he said, no, you can sing this song because it's a storyteller song. It's not so much sung as okay. And you can do that. And I did it. It got on radio, not to a great extent, but enough for me to sit back and go, 
okay, well, if they're going to play it with me sounding that bad, I'd better go get some lessons, which is I then spent six months with a professional voice coach. And uh, I, I find singing to be harder work than I ever imagined. Um, I, I had an opportunity long ago, back in the 90s, to watch Cher recording with a, a group where she, she, she was not the star. She came in to do a duet with a guy in that band who was one of her roadies. And she had her, she had her vocal coach with her. And it, it was a team effort between Cher and her vocal coach. And they would work on each line of the song individually, the coach and Cher, and then Cher would go in and sing the song. And then the vocal coach would critique her. And then she'd go back. She was a perfectionist. I, I, at the time I was like, I was like, wait a minute, Cher, Cher is like one of the greatest female pop singers of all time. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't appreciate that, A, she was such a pro, and B, that she would work so hard at it despite, she was in her 40s then. I mean, she had nothing to prove, but she was working harder than I think I ever saw a singer in the studio work at that point in my life to get it right. Yeah, and I think that's a testament to the fact that, you know, people consider her to be, you know, one of the the greatest, certainly pop singers, you know, whereas you can you can hear the singers that you can tell who doesn't work that hard, you know, the people who make a nice pop song, but uh, it doesn't have the staying power, you know, it, there's it's the difference between like a Christina Aguilera and a Britney Spears, you know, I mean, uh, they both still work both, you know, do fairly well, but uh, you can you can tell which one of them it, it was more important to, but you know, I guess it comes down to talent. So at the end of the day, Cher is just incredibly talented. And then she's like, yeah, I could I could do an okay song. And I think the most interesting thing you said, this wasn't her song. It was like a, du a duet for someone else, which if there's ever anything you don't have to work hard on, it's like it's well, it's not right. for her album, you know. Right. So she wasn't a lead, but but she she busted her ass. And I, I look back on it now and yeah. I go, every time I step up to a microphone now, I go, Okay, if she had to work her ass off to do it, I have to work my ass off doubly hard, you know. Right. No, absolutely. Well, I think that's a, it's a great lesson to learn. And I think it's uh, something to keep in mind as people. Uh, so is there, is there a one-stop uh, website or social media account for High Plains Drifters where people can the, go to social, find out more about the song? Yeah. The social media tag is at HPD music. Um, okay. There's a Facebook page. There's a, the web page. No one seems to look at bands web pages anymore. So, I mean, we have it. I think it's actually still under reconstruction. Right. It's highplanesdrifters-hyphenated.com. Uh, but uh, probably, uh, you know, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, blah, 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 at HPD yeah. Music, or just search for the band on the web or go to Pandora, Spotify, Apple, or Amazon, search High Plains Drifters. Yeah, people can find the song and the uh, the self-titled debut album. Uh, I, I I saw that there on Spotify and uh, was listening to it as I was putting the notes together. So, uh, well, uh, be best of luck with uh, with Santa bringing back your girlfriend, not you literally, but uh, you know the the you in the song. You know, I hope that uh, Santa uh, makes it right by the person singing the song, and maybe uh, he doesn't have to drink quite drink. Yeah quite so much. Uh, I, I may be drinking through these holidays, but um, <laughs> more because I, I just like spiking my eggnog. Um, I, I, think, I think this year for me, what this song has come to represent is, you know, it's like bring back all the things that made Christmas normal. You know, it's not yeah. just bring your girlfriend back. You know, everyone's going to this Thanksgiving, pretty much most people not being with their families. And that will unfortunately, I think largely be too, be true come Christmas. 
come Christmas as well. Uh, I'd like to think we'll come out of it, you know, after this Christmas vaccines and everything should fix things next year. I pray to God. And yeah. So, yeah, you know, I was having a conversation uh, about this uh, with uh, friends of ours uh, over the weekend, you know, just, you, you hear a lot about the Spanish flu of 1918 and you just wonder, you know, about like the way that people took it seriously. Some people didn't take it seriously and then it came back. Uh, and then what followed that though, of course, was the, the roaring twenties where everybody was like, Oh my God, let's just finally have some fun. You know, and then, and then they had prohibition to kind of tamp down on the fun. But before that, you know, everybody was, so I feel like, you know, maybe it's mid 2021 or definitely by 2022, but it's like, oh, well, we'll also have roaring twenties. It's like, oh, you think things were crazy in 2019? We'll just wait when people like, you know, you have people who live places where they don't have to be, they don't feel they have to be quite as careful. You know, things are a little bit more normal, but when everybody can be out there and, and doing whatever they want, you know, the first time that I get to go to a, you know, a stadium concert with like 50,000 people, uh, I'll be like, Oh my God, I, I'm, I'm going to come for the, the, you know, for sound check. I, I want to just, you know, yeah. soak it all in, you know? So uh, yeah, I think that uh, I, I like to think the good times are around the corner and uh, the, the holiday season, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and uh, everything in between, I think uh, makes it, uh, makes it fun to uh, you know, it, there's so much to enjoy about this time of year, even when you can't see uh, your extended family. And look, there are a lot of people, who are probably not that disappointed that they, you know, don't have to, you know, there was a, there was a movie a number of years ago, wasn't very good called four Christmases about having to visit oh, everybody's right. family. I, I saw it. I saw yeah. it. it was, yeah. yeah. And just imagine like, Oh yeah, I don't have to, I, well, it's like, well, we can't go visit your parents, uh, you know, your, your, your uh, step parents and you know, all this, we, we got to stay home just with our immediate family. And uh, I, I don't know. I think there's a, there's something to be said for that across the board. But then, yeah, next Thanksgiving, everybody's going to have to get on a plane because, uh, you, you know, you all sat it out uh, this year. My, my family's dying to get on a plane. We're not likely to do it anytime soon. But uh, yeah. uh, I, I don't know. I, I hope you're right that at, when this is all over, the, that the whole world goes a little crazy again. That'd be good. Good see. crazy. You know, crazy. not, not, not the bad we've had, crazy. You know, we'd have enough, we've had enough crazy crazy yeah. this summer. Yeah. But good crazy would be cool. And in the meantime... You know, if it's been it's been cool to kind of cocoon with the family and reconnect. I, I I have the kind of job that often keeps me working hours that are a little longer than normal, and sure. uh, it's been to be able to be home and watch my daughter go from twelve to thirteen and be around the entire time uh, has been a blessing. I remember when I was about 12 or 13, my dad started working for himself and was home a lot more. And uh, I always enjoyed having him around. Um, I hope my daughter will look back on this time and feel the same way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's not just like one day where she's like, so when are you going back oh, out? It's like, or where's, where's my Venmo card? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Larry, uh, Nikki, it has been uh, delightful to chat with you. Uh, I do. Uh, I do enjoy the uh, Santa bring my girlfriend back. I look forward to hearing the, the new album when it's ready and uh, everything in between. And uh, I hope that uh, both Christmas songs end up in the heavy rotation of, uh, you know, Christmas stations across the country. No, across the world. Come on. Across the world. Right. <laughs> world you need that, yeah, you need I mean, that international publishing too, you know? Yeah. Look, it, that, that, that's a lot to hope for. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, we're, we're optimistic. You can't, you can't do this and not be optimists, right? Sure. 
especially when you you don't have the backing of uh, you know of anybody's backing. You know, you're you're out there on your own. I'm really grateful to guys like you for giving unsigned bands like us a shot. So thank you. It means a lot to us to get any attention whatsoever. Um, I want to thank everybody at Universal Music Distribution who loved this song and are helping us get it out there. Um, that that was completely unexpected. So, you know, who knows? Next year, if if next year my song, my band song is, is still playing, either of them on the radio, I'll have people like you to thank, and I will absolutely get on a plane and come to Southern California and thank you in person. And and I'll I'll make you get right back on the plane when you hear me sing a karaoke version of your song. If, if we can go out and sing karaoke, I have never done it. I, I've always been shy about singing in public, but uh, now that I've forced myself to learn to sing, I, I I would do that. I'll fly to Southern California. Thank you, and uh, we'll go sing karaoke together. Uh, all right, I love the sound of that, Larry. I love the sound right. of the song and the band. Thank you so much, and thank you to everyone uh, who uh, joined us. Uh, that's uh, all for now. If you want to keep in touch with the show, uh, Blackcast, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T.com, The Blackcast on Facebook, and of course, at Blackcast on Twitter, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. Happy Thanksgiving. I've been drinking way too much this Christmas. My friends all want to know the reason why. I keep drinking like a fish all Christmas. Well, at Thanksgiving, my love told me goodbye. She ran off with a fat man and his reindeer. He promised her she'd have eternal life with no need to turn into a vampire. My girl is planning on becoming Santa's wife. Santa, please bring back my girlfriend She's the angel on my tree She's my mistletoe and the holly When she's smiling back at me I do love her, so I beg you bring her back Or on Christmas Day I'll have a heart attack Tell me more Pour me a whiskey Tell me more Get me a beer Tell me more I'm tired of talking about my lack of Christmas cheer Santa, turn your sleigh around and bring her back on Christmas Day, I'll have a heart attack. So do you broadcast this? You you um, record it and broadcast it later or edit it? Or what do you, what do, you do? Or just send it on out live and raw? Uh, doing both, actually. So I'm going to do the video live starting uh, pretty much right now. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that'll be on. Uh, it'll be on YouTube where everybody will see it, and then I edit together the audio as part of the audio version of the podcast. So it's cool. a little bit of both. So people watching the video, they're seeing this little chat right now. But then people who hear the audio, they're going to hear the song, and then it's going to fade down, and then it's going to sound all professional when I say, "Welcome to the Black Cast." Joining me now, guitarist, singer, songwriter Brian Ray has a great new song. Yeah. 